Hey everybody, welcome to the Teaching for Bridgetown Church Online. If you are new or visiting, my name is Bethany Allen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Now, as many of you know, we just spent the last few weeks really unpacking what it means to lean into the practice of simplicity, to not just discover and create new habits of minimizing or organizing or even simplifying, but to instead experience the transformation of this practice, both at a soul and heart level. Now, you'll remember that we've been framing simplicity as an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. And today, we'll continue in that framework as we conclude this practice by talking about what Joshua Becker calls the lifeblood of simplicity. It was Independence Day, 1979, when President Jimmy Carter addressed the nation with a famous speech called the Crisis of Confidence, or more famously dubbed the Malaise Speech. And in it was this profound statement. He said, human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. Now, there's lots here, but essentially in this statement, President Carter was saying that we as Americans have a happiness or a satisfaction problem. And that stuff, what we consume and have is really at the heart of the issue. Now, it's no secret that we as Americans are obsessed with feeling good, particularly as Portlanders. We love feeling happy. In fact, it's now a scientific reality that we are, despite a myriad of social and economic achievements, despite a technological revolution and a ratio of wealth most of the world would marvel at, still dissatisfied. We are still at our cores unhappy people who are longing for more. It's what sociologists and psychologists are calling the happiness crisis. It's a crisis rooted in the fact that while happiness is an innate and natural desire, it is also an insatiable one, driving many to consume more and more with the promise of satisfaction, only to be left more empty and dissatisfied and estranged from their actual needs. In his article in the Seattle Times, Dick Meyer summed up this crisis perfectly when he said, despite the statistics that prove humans never had it so good, we don't feel so good. On every page of the human story, we find no man or woman exempt from this wrestle, from this struggle. And so the question is, what do we do? And is there a way to reconcile our desire for happiness and at the same time find peace and satisfaction for our souls. Today, we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about this. So look down with me at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Here, Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
Now here, we pick up at the end of Paul's letter to the Church of Philippi. This was a letter he wrote during his imprisonment in Rome. Now this church, well known for their wealth and often indulgent lifestyle, had sent Paul a financial gift. And in verse 10, we find him responding to it, highlighting his gratitude, but also their heart in giving it. And what Paul is doing in this introductory phrase is reminding the Philippians that his thankfulness for their giving was not because he was needy, though he was, but because it was good for them to be people who were free to give. Now, in verse 11, Paul says something pretty simple, and yet it's layered with deep meaning. He tells his readers that he has learned to be content, whatever his circumstances, that he has been in seasons of need, and he's also been in seasons where he had more than enough. And still he says, verse 12, that he has learned the secret of being content in every situation. Now, there are two things here that I don't want us to miss. The first is what Paul means when he says he's learned to be content. Content here in the Greek means satisfied with what one has and free from the need of external aid or circumstances. The image here is that of something that's containing sufficient resources within itself, not in need of anything else to make it whole or to bring peace to it. So here we find Paul saying that he learned to be satisfied, soul satisfied, both with what he has and who he is. That no matter his circumstances or situation, he is a soul at rest. Now next, I want you to notice how Paul says he learned to be content. And he says this twice. The word learned here is monothono. It's a discipline or practice in which one directs their mind to something and it produces an external result. More simply put, it means to learn through and by experience. Meaning that contentment is not just a spiritual idea or something apprentices of Jesus will happen upon. Instead, it is a discipline, something that was formed in Paul, something he learned through experience. From possessions to influence, Paul now knew that none of those things could satisfy the ache of happiness within. And that makes sense, right? Because we know from Paul's life that he encountered both good and bad realities, hard and easy, abundance and scarcity. And through walking all of those paths, we see his heart growing in satisfaction, making it clear that what he possessed and who he was to others was sufficient to meet his deep soul ache. He had learned who and what it was that could bring true satisfaction. Finally, in verse 13, we find Paul saying that the only thing that met and satisfied this ache was Jesus, who gives him strength. Or another way to read this is who empowers him or enables him to do just that. Making Jesus and dependence on him central and key to experiencing true contentment. Now, every person, even the most spiritual like Paul, will at one time or another be confronted with reconciling the ache, the need and the desire to feel fulfilled within. To feel satisfied and happy with what they have and who they are. The problem is contentment doesn't come naturally and how we pursue it is often contrary to how we could actually achieve it. And we can trace that all the way back to our parents in the garden. In Genesis chapter three, we see the first ache of discontentment make its way into the heart of a woman named Eve. Satan comes to her and tempts her, not with a call for gluttonous consumption and a Prada bag, 
but rather with an idea. The idea that God was depriving her and Adam of something good or better. That what he had provided and would ultimately provide could fall short, would potentially not be all that she had truly desired. So she, being a finite being, in a moment decided that she knew better and would now be in charge of satisfying her infinite desires. Eve's craving has become our own. We have inherited the ache of discontentment. The questions of God depriving us of something good or better still lingers in our hearts today and pushes us to find a remedy. We keep thinking that there has to be more for us, a better house, a better husband, or children, or more money, or a better job, or better health, or intellect, or beauty, leaving us subject and enslaved to a driving, insatiable desire to satisfy our fleshly appetite, and to do so in any way we know how. Paul's words to the Philippians, while they could seem simple and polite, are actually pretty profound because it's here that Paul was prophetically speaking into a culture that understood full well the metrics of abundance, of gluttony, all fueled by the ache for happiness and satisfaction. And notice that Paul wasn't speaking to them as though he didn't understand their reality, but as though he did. He wasn't offering an anecdotal lesson. His message of contentment was a deep prophetic invitation to a tested freedom he knew well. Contentment wouldn't simply be a disposition born of indifference or apathy or desperation. It wouldn't be self-sufficient in the ordinary or common sense of the term. It, it is not egotistic delusion, but rather, he declares, it is a satisfying byproduct of holy union, of salvation, marked by humility and dependence and trust. Jeremiah Burrow, a leading and scholarly voice on contentment, once said, a soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing else but God. I think what he and Paul are getting at here is that contentment is the holy means to a restless end, that it is the antidote to the greed and the gluttony of our lives, that it is the remedy to senseless striving, and it is the birthplace of a life of simplicity. If rightly ordered, contentment will actually move us at a heart and soul level towards a life of simplicity. And you can't really have one without the other. Think about it. If you are content, satisfied at a soul level, you are actually extinguishing the fire of more in your life. The burning desire to look a certain way or to temporarily fulfill the ache of happiness, to get more, buy more, or own more leading you to only own and consume what you need, making simplicity an easy practice. But if you aren't content, simplicity will be impossible because the lens through which you view your needs will be tainted by the driving impulse of more. You'll never be truly satisfied enough to simplify your life. The beauty of the practice of simplicity is that it has this profound way of revealing what we actually believe about ourselves, about God, and about others. It forces us to look in the mirror, literally, <laughs> and to confront the reality and condition of our soul. 
Simplicity is a practice. It is a discipline, not because it makes your life look a certain way or because it gives you credibility on Instagram. It's a practice because when it is done well, it is a deeply refining and transformative work that is costly and painful and revealing. Simplicity is the practice or a practice of undoing. It's the work of soul freedom, of sanctification, and it transforms not just your internal life, but your external life as well. True simplicity is birthed from holy contentment, and each fuel the other. Each perpetuates the necessity of the other. It's like a cycle. You know, contentment produces simplicity, which in turn produces more contentment, which in turn based on the very satisfaction of our souls, leads to an even more simplified life. And the cycle continues. A few weeks ago, John Mark talked about something he called the center, the holy center, the center point of bliss in the language of John Wesley. And his point was that as apprentices of Jesus, we are called to look within, to not look to ourselves, but really to look to God's spirit. That line has haunted me over the last few weeks because in it, I am confronted with the reality that when I look within to the center, when I look and I find Jesus there, I know I have everything I need in him. And yet I still, even after years of spiritual formation, believe and buy into the illusion that I need something more. The practice of simplicity is about coming face to face with our center and asking the question, is my soul content? Contentment is a call to the center, and when it's embraced, it does three very powerful things in our lives. First, it teaches us to see and value what's most important. Contentment provides for us the lens we need to distinguish between our wants and our needs which frees us up to find the balance of our desires and to connect with who and what we need. It moves our focus off ourselves and gives us the space to see the world around us for what it really is. Contentment is the great slowing agent. It calls for the soul to see the good. It draws our eyes to things that carry weight, to things that we may have missed before because of our rushed or impulsive speed or pace. Next, it releases you from the tyranny of more. Contentment doesn't relieve the absence of desire, but it does teach you to be satisfied with where you are and what you have. It frees you from the oppressive and dictating reality of the elusive more. Finally, it roots you in the present, which by the way, is where the work of spiritual formation is where the work of spiritual formation actually takes place. Contentment tethers you to what is, not to what isn't. It demands you see what is happening now, who you are with and what you do have. And it's in the present that you are able to see actively, not with wanting eyes, what God is doing now. Contentment teaches us to number our days. It calls us to remember that we are a vapor and ultimately transforms what we value and where we place our value. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we actually cultivate contentment in our life? 
In the work of spiritual formation, we constantly have to reorient. So reorient our hearts, our thinking, our bodies. And when it comes to contentment, we will also have to reorient. To reorient how we find joy, what we name as valuable, what we hold up as priorities. And even more than that, we will have to allow Jesus to be the one who determines not only the value, but the necessity of what we hold up as valuable. Practically speaking, there are about six things we can start doing to cultivate contentment. Becoming Minimalist author Joshua Becker offers six uh, of these places to start, and I've added a few more because I can, and I've also adapted a few of his. But basically, he says this. First, we need to practice gratitude. It's impossible to develop contentment without gratitude. They are inseparable. Grateful people are those who have learned to focus on the good things in their life, not the things that they are missing or what they feel like they're lacking. And it's here that you can actually start small. You can make a list of the good things in your life. I mean, just put one thing on there if you have to. Do a, do a two-minute meditation in the morning, calling to mind what you were grateful for. I did that even this morning. Uh, talk about what you're grateful for around the dinner table if you eat at a table. Uh, sometimes I need help with the gratitude practice. I always have. Not that I'm not a grateful person. It's just been... Uh, I'm just not like actively disciplined, like I'm grateful for, I'm not one of those people. Um, so I force myself sometimes to, to tell someone a few things that I'm grateful for every day. And usually it ends up being the grocery store clerk, but you know, you find a person and you just do it. Practicing gratitude and integrating it into your life with intention will undoubtedly shift and cultivate a heart that is oriented around, uh, around what you have and who you are as opposed to what you don't have and who you aren't. Next, take captive your thoughts. The mind is the place of transformation. And from the scriptures to neuroscience, we see and know that what we think about shapes reality. We know that we can even create new neural pathways of thought and feeling in our mind. A person who lacks contentment in their life will often engage when and then thinking. When I get fill in the blank, then I will be happy. The call here is to pay attention to what you're thinking about, to where you're allowing your thoughts to go, and to, in that moment, not give into the influence of them, but to hold them up to Jesus. Remember, in order to take something captive, you have to name what it is. In psychology, therapists often use the phrase, name it to tame it, meaning transforming our discontentment starts with naming where we feel discontent. So, be mindful about what you're thinking about. Be quick to name it and tame it. And consider how what you're thinking about, what you name or don't name, is shaping the condition and the desires of your heart. Third, stop buying things, at least for a while. And look, this is coming from someone who loves a good shopping trip and a new outfit. I don't mean this literally necessarily, but I think that for many of us, it's been integrated into our lives that the proper way we dis diffuse discontent is to actually purchase an outward item that is seemingly causing the discontentment. Almost no energy is spent determining the true root of the discontent. Are you dissatisfied with your body? Go buy new clothes. Not content with your vehicle or your car? Go buy a new one. We've gotten into the habit of satisfying our discontent by simply spending more money. And we've got to break that cycle or that habit in our life. 
Sometimes the deprivation of something is exactly what we need in order to see what is really there and what it really does for us. The next time you recognize discontentment surfacing in your life, refuse to give into that habit. Instead, commit to better understand yourself and why the lack of that item is causing discontentment in you. Only after you intentionally break the habit can true contentment begin to surface. Next, let go of comparison. Comparing your life with someone else's will always lead to discontentment. It's been said that comparison is the thief of joy, and that is true. There will always be people, always, in our life who appear to be better off than we think they are. They will look perfect and seem perfect on Instagram. But look, it's a fact. We always compare the worst of what we know about ourselves to the best assumptions that we can make about other people, which isn't fair. Their life really is never as perfect as we make it out to be. So we've got to stop comparing. We've got to get out of the headspace of competition and allow reality to tell us the truth about ourselves and about other people. Next, we've got to regularly invest in the life of other people. Now, that may sound simple enough, but it's really, really important. When you begin helping others, when you share who you are, time, money, energy, you actually find yourself becoming more content. This practice forces you to look beyond your life and circumstances, and it grants you perspective, not only of who you are, but of who you are becoming. Do this out of a place of love. Do this out of a place uh, of genuine affection for other people, but also allow it to be a transforming space for you to understand who God is designing you to be. Investing in others calls you forward. It demands you look at what it is that you have and see it and name it as good. Finally, in the words of Joshua Becker, be content with what you have and never with what you are. Becker's point here is to keep growing, to keep leaning in, to keep going to the center and facing Jesus there. Practice contentment. Push into what is hard and let it reveal what is still broken and in need of healing. Contentment is not the same as complacency. Instead, it really is a call towards greater holiness. Now, for the apprentice of Jesus, the journey towards contentment can often feel overwhelming and far off. In fact, many of us are discontent about our discontentment. <laughs> I thought that was a funny joke. But in all seriousness, while the invitation and transformation of contentment will, will require lots of patience and fortitude, it will also begin its work immediately. Meaning we can, in a moment, be freed from the tyranny of what our world demands. We can find reprieve and soul-level freedom in the places where we've only known bondage. Contentment realigns us to a dependence on the only one who can satisfy our souls. <laughs>